You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today I'm with Charlie Strand, who is running a Rails-driven site to help power a government API that lets you find out information about veterans. Charlie, welcome to the show. Hi, hi Nick. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. So do you want to start us off by introducing yourself a little bit and letting people know more about the app that we're going to talk about today? Absolutely. Uh, so my name is Charlie Strand. I work for a company called Oddball. Uh, we primarily contract in the federal space. Mainly what I do, the project I work on, is APIs to help present veteran data to third parties. So if you go to developer.va.gov, all of the APIs that we um, provide out, that is the project I work on. Uh, our company ends up working on other things like uh, healthcare.gov and a few other different federal projects. But primarily, what we'll be talking about is the back end of what drives api.va.gov and the APIs that uh, also feed va.gov. Interesting. Yeah, I took a look at the site and it's like this huge API just to find out information about veterans, but like no way you can just sign up as a regular user and get that information, right? Uh, correct. Uh, well, you can sign up and start going through our development process and then there is a path to production for people that want to get into the space. So we've had a couple different consumers develop products that haven't done work in the federal space before, but have decided that hey, they think they can make a great product for veteran service representatives, for example. So for people that they want to build a product for the people that are helping veterans. Right. So you're basically giving access to people who are building services on top of your API, not just like general like citizens or whatever. Right. Unless you're a veteran, because if you can actually use our API as a veteran um, through an OAuth flow and access your own data. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So this sounds like a probably a pretty big project. Like how many people are working on just this aspect of it? There's four or five different teams throughout the code base. Uh, just the developer.va.gov folks. Uh, we're probably around 20 developers and 50 people total. Wow. What about the other 30 that, who aren't developers? Uh, we have project management. We've got uh, UI, UX. We have... Uh, we use like human-centric design. So we do a lot of UX research, a lot of different folks that are coordinating. There's a lot of different projects involved in the code base. So trying to coordinate back and forth between different things so people aren't stepping on each other's toes. Right. Yeah. That makes total sense. It's a pretty big team though, right? It is. It is. Um, there's a lot of work though. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So how long has this site been running up in uh, production for? So we've had... Uh, we're va.gov changed from vets.gov. I want to say about two and a half years ago. Uh, we are about, I think, 18 months into the third party development platform. So it, it hasn't been around that long in the sake of VA systems. So we're a fairly new player within the VA, but, um, we've been able to get a lot done within that time, time frame. Yeah. So are you allowed to share a little bit about like how much traffic your API serves? Um, yeah, we can, we can talk about that, but we don't have a ton yet. Uh, we actually just onboarded a few internal VA customers, um, where we start, I think we're doing about 5,000 internal 
like disability claims a month now. Uh, because the path to production isn't like it would be with something like Stripe, um, getting our third parties on board is a little bit of a slower process. So even though it's taken us a shorter amount of time to develop the APIs, onboarding our consumers is a little bit more of a process. Right. You can't just drop in an address in the last four of your social and you're in. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so given the state of this application, like, like what motivated you to use Ruby on Rails? So at the beginning of the project, there was a big debate whether we wanted to go with um, a node-based application or a Rails-based application. And it really just came down to the strength of the team um, and what we were most comfortable with. Uh, so we chose Rails. We still use some node-based applications for intermediary pieces. So how we end up working with our um, OAuth flow, we have a proxy that's written in Node. We still do some of our smoke test uh, applications are in Node, but basically we just knew we could be very productive with Rails and we could provide more for the VA faster using Rails. Right. Yeah, a lot of people think like, you know, it's 2020, like Rails is going stale or whatever, but it's still a very powerful platform to build apps quickly and efficiently. Yeah, I think it's the best time to be a Rails developer right now, to be honest. Yeah. I've always been following DHH's like keynotes and it's always like something cool the next year. You know, it's like, yeah, it's always improving. Yeah, and then we're we're getting back to with with GitHub finally merging themselves back into Rails Master. Great features like the multi-database support. There's just a lot of fun things happening in the community right now. Yeah, speaking of that, and uh, I guess Rails 6 a bit, is your application running Rails 6? We are not, we are on Rails 5.2. We're trying to make a push to get to six, but um, that's one of those dirty secrets of contracting is that they want to pay for features, not necessarily. Right. Yeah, that's every contracting gig ever. Right, right. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, the team is sort of big. Like, is this like a single Rails monolith that you're working on? Uh, today it is. Um, however, we have ideas and plans potentially to start breaking these up into either multiple Rails applications or just multiple microservices in general, because some of our APIs absolutely don't even talk to a database because they're just a pass through to another internal VA system. Some of us, some of them have to talk to the database. So we've been discussing as this code base grows, not only in terms of size of the code base, but in terms of the number of teams working on it we're kind of getting to that breaking point of does it make sense for everybody to be working on the same code base but be working in different parts of the code base and one of those challenges ends up being that while you're not touching each other's code and having merge conflicts you still have to share a ci process a test suite things like that so as we grow our deploy times grow our test suite grows and some of those things, they, they don't affect each other. So we're getting to the point that we're starting to talk about breaking out microservices. Is that going to be a decision that uh, a couple of the lead developers just take on, or is it kind of like a group effort? Um, ultimately, the lead developers will, will make that decision and actually make that decision with buy-in from our product owners at the VA. But it'll go through, like, an, we'll do an RFC, 
we'll get everybody we'll probably have a couple of meetings we'll talk about the advantages the disadvantages um, but then ultimately um, we will plead our case to congress and somebody will decide yay or nay right so i've actually never worked on any any government contracts is there like just a ton of red tape involved or is it not as bad as you might think Yes and no. So actually, our contacts at the VA are very good. Uh, they're very progressive. They're very into getting stuff done, using a good workflow. Agile in the terms of agile, but not necessarily in the terms of we need to be so strict, strictly agile that we're not agile. So the people we're interacting with, our product owners are really great. Now, it's a the VA is big and a lot of the systems we have to integrate with are have been around for a while. And so they don't necessarily have as much fluidity as we do. So some of their processes are a little bit harder to work around, but we fight through those. Our day-to-day isn't necessarily as bad as when we're trying to you know, start a new integration with a new service. That's good to hear. I think from the outside, it's like sort of hard to conceptualize like the size of your application? Like, could you just like maybe give like a high level breakdown of like how much code are we dealing with here? Um, yeah, I could absolutely do that. Uh, so our stuff is split into a few different things. We have, uh, we're like 150,000 lines of code, I think. Um, mid 140, 140s, uh, when I pulled the numbers earlier. But we break it down into what ends up driving VA.gov. So VA.gov is actually a React application that calls an API. And that API sits in our, basically, our app folder, so app controllers. And then all of the third-party APIs that we do, we're exposing through modules, basically internal gems. And so we have about six of those different internal gems, but I, I... I should have pulled this number for you before, but the number of controllers we have is, um, I would, I think there's over 30 controllers um, just to drive the VA.gov side. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a substantially sized app. Yeah, it's pretty big. And, you know, it's all, uh, it's all open source. So if you go to the Department of Veteran Affairs GitHub page, uh, everything we do that doesn't require like credentials, like being exposed, that is all available as open source. Hmm. That is super, super unexpected. So that whole entire massive Rails app that you're running is just sitting there in GitHub or somewhere? Correct. Yep. Huh. Yeah, I'll, I'll absolutely make sure to drop a link there in the show notes for that because I, I definitely want to check that out. Yeah, it's 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 very interesting because technically anything at the government like this could be available from a FOIA request, Freedom of Information request. So why skip the red tape? We'll just put it out there for you. Yeah, see from like the outside, like I didn't even know that's a thing. Like are, like a regular citizen or whatever can just request to see the source code of a government app? Not all government apps, but um, certain ones, you know. Um, yeah, I'm sure not not all of them. I'm sure Snowden has uh, an opinion on that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's cool though. So this application, uh, primarily API-based, you mentioned React. So I'm guessing like probably not using server render templates here, right? Uh, correct. Um, and so developer.va.gov is also a React app, um, and so is va.gov. And so all of that is done not on the server side. As we start to flush out developer.va.gov, there's some decisions to be made because as we build out our more account management system there, 
there's a potential that we might go back to like a server side rendered uh, architecture. Uh, VA.gov, there, I, there's no plans to do that. So that'll all stay with a React app and just a API. Right. Is there some type of like features of the app that make that a good fit? Like, you know, a lot of WebSocket stuff or just a lot of front end code? As it, as it relates to VA.gov, I think it's a lot of the forms that the veterans are submitting um, and they can be a little bit more complicated. It makes sense to use uh, a framework like React that can handle those things better, that are a little bit more complicated. When it comes to developer.va.gov, I think it's just that it was a lot easier for us to spin up just a React app, put that in front of the light content that we have on an API that we're just presenting some Swagger documentation and some metadata than to spin up a whole Rails app and maintain a Rails app for that since we already had an API. Yeah, that makes sense. And then I guess what, you just have a couple of developers who just basically just work exclusively on the front end part? Is it like set up like that? Um, that's the case for VA.gov, but for developer.va.gov, we actually maintain both the API and the developer, what we call the developer portal, so the React app. Okay. So we kind of do both sides. Yeah, that's cool. So are you using any of the, uh, I guess, more modern features of Rails front end stuff like Webpacker? Well, we're not because uh, developer.va.gov is also a React app. So that is, it's a completely separate deployment that just pulls over an API. If we decide to pull it into changing that from a React app into server-side Rails app, then I think we probably would. And maybe if it was my vote, we'd use Stimulus. There is actually a design.va.gov it's a website design.va.gov that actually is the recommendations for the design of all of the different sites within the VA. So sadly that means we wouldn't be able to use something like a, um, like a tailwind CSS, which has my heart these days, but, um, that's what we, uh, that's what we use on the developer portal now to direct our styles. Um, and if we brought it into a rails front end or a rails based front end, then we would use the same thing. Okay. Yeah. I really appreciate that when bigger companies release those design documentation, because it's like, that just didn't come out of nowhere. Like a lot of people put a lot of thought into that. Yeah. And I think it for, for the VA makes a ton of sense because like there are outside of what the VA, VA.gov does and like the veteran portal and outside of what we do, there are there are untold number of teams working on subsystems that, I mean, I don't even know about. And so to have a centralized design philosophy that's publicly available, uh, it's really nice. Yeah, it's also funny you mentioned Tailwind like a minute ago. Like, yeah, I'm starting to get into that as well. And uh, Chris from GoRails was just on the other week and we were talking about like how cool it is. Yeah, I mean, I don't get to do much UI uh, in, my, in my day job, but... Outside of that and any side things I do, I think, I mean, Tailwind and the videos that uh, they've done, it just not only has it made me more productive as a designer, it's actually taught me a lot more about Flexbox. Yeah, it's so funny you say that. Like, I'm literally coding something now using it, and I'm like, wow, I'm actually learning about Flexbox. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, if, if I would have tried to do that by myself and try to just figure it out, I would have stumbled for a long time, but... You know, Adam in the videos that he does, it's like, oh yeah, I just do this. Like, oh, 
I wish I would have known that. Exactly. Yeah. It's like the exact same experience. Now, going back to your Rails app, though, do you maybe want to just unwind a little bit more about your attack stack? Like what database are you using? Are you using Docker? Like things like that? Um, so we are using Docker for deployments as of two hours ago. Um, really? <laughs> yeah. True story. Um, we just moved that over. Um, we we are in GovCloud. Our system is a little bit more complicated than uh, a lot of other applications in the sense that because va.gov is so large and not everything that is in va.gov is something in our Rails app. Uh, there are other VA systems, like there's a publicly available search for what's called the Office of uh, General Counsel. You can look up who is an authorized power of attorney um, and what their codes are. That's not something that any of our our Rails app supports, but we then have to proxy that into VA, uh, VA.gov. So we have forward proxies, uh, well, we have reverse proxies set up to handle things like that. And then because we need to then jump into internal VA systems, we also have forward proxies set up in GovCloud. So there's a lot of uh, complicated interactions between the different VA systems. But we also use, for the application itself and deployment, we use auto-scale groups, uh, both in our production and you know our staging, our de development environments. A lot of that stuff's been tuned really well, and it's nice that we actually don't have to touch it very often um, anymore. But we do have an entire team in the mix that is completely centered around all the DevOps. Okay. So, like, what about database-wise, like Postgres and Redis and stuff like that? We use Postgres. We have a very light database, though, because basically the job of uh, our application is to proxy information from an internal VA system into you know, our responses. So we do save a few things in our database, um, nothing crazy. So our database is a lot smaller than you would expect, but we do have a pretty big Redis store because some of those VA systems can be kind of slow. So we we cache a lot of that stuff in Redis and then we can look, do a lookup. And if the lookup is old or that lookup doesn't exist, then we'll go back to the VA system to find it. Interesting. Okay. So you mentioned auto-scaling groups, which hints at using AWS. Uh, before this call, like you, you know, you let me know you're using AWS GovCloud. So, can you talk a little bit about how that's different than regular AWS? Yeah, so GovCloud is is set up in a way that there's certain federal regulations around how data is stored and transmitted that really only applies to certain government sites. It's actually if you if you look up AWS GovCloud homepage, they go through some of these details. And the average user would never really need to do these regulations, but a lot of these things are related to like foreign connections into the system. And believe it or not, there's like regulations around like foreign money laundering. So there's like technical requirements of how servers or how the architecture has to be to prevent that. So and that's where GovCloud comes in um, and that GovCloud doesn't actually even have all of the services that a regular AWS cloud has. So we haven't run into any issues yet about services that we need that we don't have, but it's interesting to note that um, 
when Amazon rolls out a feature for a, or a new service, they probably did about 10 of them since we started the call. They're not always available on GovCloud until uh, a long time later. Interesting. So it sounds like, yeah, it's basically the same as regular AWS, but less services available and way more requirements on like how you store data and connections into the system. Yeah, and I think a lot a lot of those are at the, there's a lot of things at the hardware level and at the Amazon level than things that we have to touch. Right. So how is all of this coming together? Are you using something like ECS or EKS or just EC2 instances? Uh, they're EC2 instances um, all spun up with, you know, we have Terraform and Ansible and everything building up. The S3 buckets that we need, the EC2 instances, yeah, everything's done, automated. Nice. Finally, someone uses Ansible. Like I've done <laughs> 13 of these episodes and no one really talked much about it. Yeah, I wish I could speak more to it. Um, it I, I touch it now and then, um, but before I got onto the project, like they had just done such a good job of setting it up that now it's basically you just change some keys. Right. So before we get maybe a little bit more into the Ansible stuff, do you want to give like, just maybe like a high level of like what type of AWS services you're using and like how many instances you have, things like that. So we're using, we use EC2, we use S3. Uh, we have our auto scale groups with EC2 uh, well, on our load balancers. We're working with CloudWatch. We use SNS. Um, we actually use that for some, we actually tie SNS into some of our background jobs. So because some of these things take a little bit longer, we'll actually use SNS to trigger another call to the API to, to do a little bit more work when that's done. Uh, let's see, what else uh, are we? CloudWatch, SNS. Oh, and then uh, we do a lot with um, Elasticsearch. So we put a lot of things into Elasticsearch that we can then report on with you know, Grafana. Right, so a lot of uh, little text search stuff with Elasticsearch? Not so much for the search. We we do a lot of our uh, put a lot of our logs, um, and a lot of our internal things in there, so we can make internal reports. Ah, so the Elk stack. Yeah. Elasticsearch, Logstash, and Kibana, I think it is. Yeah, I don't think. Um, yeah, that would be, it's a di different team than I'm on, to be honest with you. But uh, it's definitely the setup that we have. Right, similar setup, and then I guess. It sounds like you know pretty much all in with Amazon. Like you're not really using any external SaaS things for like sending emails and error reporting. No, everything is internal. Um, well, for error reporting, we do um, we do use Sentry, so we do uh, post things up to Sentry and have an instance there. Okay, so is that like not a hard requirement of the Gov Cloud platform? Like you can just integrate with other services like that, and it's okay. Everything that we integrate with has to get approved. But um, it's just a process to get things approved. And, and in this case, a century was approved. Right. Is this one of those cases where it's like it needs to be approved for your app specifically or is Sentry just a known provider that is okay, like compatible with GovCloud? Everything needs to be done individually. And it would be great if there was a, just a better, <laughs> a better way to do this. But since GovCloud is serving more than just the VA, the VA has certain requirements that may be CMS Center for Medicaid, Medicare services, they don't have. So while both can run on GovCloud, they both internally have different rules. Okay, that makes sense. 
So now swinging back to your EC2 instances, uh, can you share how many of them you're running? Uh, the, it fluctuates with the auto scale group. Um, and since our code base is shared from the R side to, uh, so our side being the developer, third party developer platform, and it's the same Rails app serving out the va.gov side. Uh, I want to say we, we're running anywhere between 10 and 15 instances at a time. But that will, that fluctuates a lot depending on certain times of the year, whether it's not like the CMS stuff. So Oddball also does some stuff with healthcare.gov where that, when it's open enrollment, like everything goes nuts. Uh, there's certain times of the year where we are having to scale a lot more than other times of the year. But um, generally it's running, I think I want to say 10 to 15 instances. Okay. So in the U.S., there's that, you know, Veterans Day holiday. Is that basically like the Black Friday of VA stuff? <laughs> it's actually um, it's actually a VA holiday. Oh, is it? Yeah. I mean, so we actually have off on Veterans Day. Ooh. But it's actually my mom's birthday, too, so. <laughs> nice. <laughs> that works out pretty good. Although, I got to say, you guys are pretty aggressive, like rolling a, a brand new Docker-based deploy on a Friday afternoon. Um, we've been testing it for a while. So do you want to talk maybe a little bit about how that works? Uh, I would, but it's actually a different team than me. So I don't want to make anybody listening. I don't want to give wrong information. Right. Okay. That makes sense. But, uh, swinging back again to those EC2 instances, what distro of Linux are you running on them? Uh, we're running, there's the, we run the Amazon distro. Oh, what is it like Amazon AMI2 or something like that? Yeah, I think we just upgraded. I know we were running on the lower version and then just upgraded. Not just upgraded. I think it was like three or four months ago. Right. I'm not an expert with that distro. It is based on Red Hat or CentOS or one of those? I think that's a, that's a good question. It was one of those two. I don't know the exact one, though. Right. Because I wanted to talk maybe a little bit about the Ansible setup. And typically, like, do you know a little bit about how the Ansible setup is set up? Uh, in, in what regard? Well, you know, with Ansible, you have like playbooks and roles to kind of configure. It's like a configuration yep. management tool. We have all that. Um, so we have the config, we have configs, we have roles, um, and they all get played out during um, our Jenkins builds. Nice. Like, I know you're probably not going to know this answer, but if you do, you're like the master of the universe. <laughs> but do you know how many, like, like if you do a full Ansible run on your infrastructure, you know how Ansible will let you know, like it keeps a tally of the tasks run. Like, do you happen to know how many Ansible tasks get run? Or even like, maybe another way to phrase this would be like, how long does it take to run it from start to finish? Oh, that one I do know because it's too long. Between our build and our deploy does take about 20 minutes. Yeesh. Yeah, that is pretty tough. But I mean, is that that's not just Ansible purely running, right? Like you mentioned Jenkins. No, that's not just Ansible. That's That's the entire build process of the test suite, the build, the deploy... The it's got to go onto each of the current or rebuild the current take down the current instances in EC2 put up the new instances with the new code. Right. So this may be a good time. Do you want to just like walk us through what it's like to get code from development to production? Yeah. So how how we work is that nobody can commit to master. Master is locked. It has to be a pull request reviewed and have a passing Jenkins build. And so every time anything's merged in a pull request to master, we'll, what we do, actually before that. So every time we make a pull request and it 
build successfully, we spin up a deploy instance. Uh, so that deploy instance is something we can test against and just make sure it's working on the web side. And then when a pull request is merged, then that auto kicks off a deploy of our development environment and our staging environment. And that kicks off both the, we have different servers set up for our workers and, to, and our actual API servers. So it'll kick off builds for both of those. And then we have a job that runs daily that will deploy new code to production. Those are only kicked off once a day automatically, but could be manually kicked off by anybody if they wanted to. Interesting. So it, it's completely hands-free if no one touches it. Right. As long as we don't break stuff. Right. Is that like the goal though? To basically deploy once a day, don't worry about it and like hope it works kind of? Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd like to say that we trust it works <laughs> with the right logging. <laughs> I didn't mean that in like, yeah, no, you know, I know like a sarcastic joking way, but it's like, that's kind of neat though. It's like, yeah, you know, it's like you just, your schedule is targeting one, one deploy per day. Right. Right. And then obviously we have to sneak something in. We can do an offhand deploy that's all done manually. And we do our deploy actually like midday. So then if there is problems, it's not like. Uh, everybody has to put out a fire as they're eating dinner. Yeah, that's definitely a good idea. So do you have any, maybe some more stories about having to get woken up at 2 a.m. to fix something? I don't. Other folks do. I mean, so the third parties that consume our APIs are very 9 to 5 folks. Uh, so I'm lucky in that regard. I'm sure there are other people at, on the project that are unhappy that I get to say that. Right. So, but yeah, in this job at least... In the past life, I've had those horror stories, but uh, in in this role, we have not had to have anything like that happen. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's always awesome when you're not woken up at, you know, 3 a.m. By not my two-year-old. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's okay, though. Yeah. They get a pass. Now, you mentioned uh, you're using Jenkins to control your CI builds. Do you want to just maybe talk a little bit about how you have that set up? Yeah, so our Jenkins builds are, um, they're all just kicked off from our pushes to uh, source control and to GitHub. So everything's pretty already in place to run a build, to take that build, make sure it passes, run the test suite, uh, make sure all of the deployment configuration files are all set up and they can actually get written to the box and without error. And then uh, after all that build process, then it'll do a, a release job and deploy out the new It'll write out the new instances and then kill the old instances. That makes sense. So you do have a load balancer in front of that where you just like pull the ones out, put the new ones in? Yeah, I think we put the new ones in then put pull the old ones out, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, we have load balancers in front of each of our deployment environments. And we use the uh, Amazon Elastic load balancers. Yeah, so in the end, it is like a, a zero downtime deployment. Right, right. And... So we actually have a separate job that we run um, for migrations. So we actually try to not put, you know, our goal is to really not lock up anything on an automatic deploy. So migrations are known to, or specifically set up to be run manually. Yeah, I think that's a very good practice. I mean, a lot of folks will run migrations on every deploy. And it's like, that's something that might work most of the time, but there's always going to be that, you know, that one time where it's like, you just can't do it in one deploy. It has to be broken up into two. Right. Right. Or three. Yeah. Yeah. 
especially when it's like a remote like you want to remove a column you know sometimes you have to you have to do a deploy to add the new column a deploy to add the logic to separate out where the stuff is going to go and then the third deploy to remove the old column yep it's definitely like a like a lockstep procedure that has to happen in a certain order so going back a little bit to your test suite uh do you have like any artificial numbers in place like you need x amount of code coverage or anything we have a 90 percent code coverage kind of uh that's part of our part of our ci build process it has to be um 90 percent coverage which is interesting. It's always great when you add one like log line and now you have to write another test. <laughs> yeah. You add a log line for somebody else's code and then it goes down under 90%. But um, it's a pretty good uh, idea in practice, but in principle, you know, we're, we're pretty focused on those in our uh, pull request reviews because, you know, you can make 100% test coverage and not test anything, you know. You know, the... the that's one of the things we definitely focus on. The other thing we focus on is, is to a really high level is making sure that we're not accidentally logging things like PII. Yeah, that would be an issue. So how many people typically do a review on the code before it gets merged in? Um, anywhere between like two and five usually. Everybody on the project is actually notified of all pull requests, whether they're on your team or not. That's been nice actually because sometimes you've seen other people integrate with things that you've touched before and it's their first time and you get to say, Oh, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's step back here. But normally it's the team that you're, you're dealing with um, on a daily basis, which is usually between three and five people. Right. That actually sounds like a, a very useful process. Cause I would want to be a part of a team where every PR gets uh, released to everybody or notified. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's well, the other problem too, is with a long, build process we 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 have this game about trying to get your stuff merged after it's been approved right because then you got to merge master back in rebuild and beat the next person to merging so is it like basically all of those meme pictures of like you really do sit there like playing swords on your <laughs> chairs for 20 minutes waiting it's uh we are a 100 percent remote company but if we weren't that would definitely be the case right so now i guess uh your distraction is the web browser yeah, YouTube. Sam the cooking guy. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, I don't want to get you in trouble or anything, but, I mean, I guess, like, if you're doing some, you know, if you're actually coding the app, and you might be doing pushes like that a couple times a day or no? Uh, sometimes it's multiple times a day. Sometimes it's maybe three or four days between one. Usually, though, when you're actually, in all honesty, waiting for your build is when you have time to do pull request reviews for other folks and, you know, make sure that your your backlog is, is is all your tickets are in the right place and it's time for you to do some of those administrative things yeah that makes sense and there's like documentation and just like yeah reviewing other code definitely no shortage of work to do right so do you actually run any type of like static analysis on your code base like rubocop we do have we do run rubocop and we actually have that's part of our build process for failure and then we also have code climate set up and that is not you can you can merge a build that doesn't pass code climate uh, and that's kind of set up because it came late in the game so you'll go in and modify like one line in a file and it might not pass code climate because of legacy stuff so that's why we don't have that blocking builds but i think eventually at some point uh, we'll turn that on to be a requirement okay so you mentioned before that you had like 
a dev and a staging environment. When you say that, though, that's not dev in, in the sense of like your development environments aren't on on AWS, right? Correct. Um, so what's interesting about working with VA systems is that it's kind of hard to access them. So we have a development environment that's not like a Rails local development environment that actually runs against a set of mock data. So both locally when we're working on our system and in that environment, all the calls are the VA and the teams we built to something called Betamocks. It's a it's actually another open source application from uh, the VA. So it's kind of like being able to run VCR, but in a deployment environment, not in a okay. test environment. Hold so, on, sorry to interrupt, but do you just want to give like a TLDR and VCR? Yeah, so VCR would be when you're running a test suite and you need to make an external network call. So it will go out and actually make that network call, record it, and then in the future, it won't try to make the external request. It'll just go and hit that file that you've already recorded, and then it'll use that response for your test. So that way your test suite is not dependent on uh, both the speed and reliability of that third party. Right. Yeah, that is super handy because I've worked with other other frameworks where, you know, you can still knock that out and do that, but it's like you're on, like you're in charge of having to get that mocked out data and like set up, like it doesn't do it for you. Right. So then we run this beta mocks. So VCR is really set up to be run as part of your test suite. So uh, we built something called beta mocks, which is set up to be part of a running environment. So the development environment or our local development environment or our quote unquote development environment that is a another instance on GovCloud. So dev-api.va.co. So that way uh, you're not dependent on internal lower level VA systems, which also have their deployment schedules and reliability issues that way, people that are testing against our um, API initially aren't testing against the reliability of those systems. Right, that makes sense. So, do you actually uh, do you version your API? We version uh, not as a whole, but we version each different. I want to call them. We we have different APIs, uh, and so each different API will get versions. So we have a a benefits intake API, which basically is a fax replacement for VA forms. Um, so that has two different versions. And then we have a benefits claims. So how people can retrieve information about claims that have been submitted or submit new claims that has a couple different versions. But then we also have a, a forms API so people can learn, like they can get information on what VA forms are actually available, like that only has one version. So each of the different APIs are versioned uniquely. Yeah, that sounds quite useful. I don't see too many teams doing that, but in practice, that sounds like quite amazing, actually. Yeah. And you know, one of the big differences between our different versions is that one of our versions is a API key-based authentication, and one of them is a like OAuth-based authentication. Hmm. Interesting. Actually, my favorite takeaway from what you said, though, is that uh, you're trying to replace fax machines. 
Yeah. I mean, we well, we're trying to do it in two steps, really. Step one is take digital information and send it across as a PDF, which, you know, that's a good first step. And the second, second one is just to take the digital information and put it into the right VA system and avoid the, you know, the paper altogether. Yeah. I know some, some banking industries are very slow on that front. Like if you ever get a dispute on Stripe and you want to contest it, you have to create screenshots, but like make them fit in portrait mode on like an 11 by eight piece of paper, because when Stripe sends a dispute over, it actually gets like faxed out on the bank's reviewing end and they just look at a piece of paper. It's crazy. It is. Yeah. Jeez. So you've done like so much stuff to kind of mitigate problems, right? It's like static analysis, test suites, like CI builds, like proper code reviews, like all sorts of great stuff. But I guess disasters do happen from time to time. So what does your disaster recovery strategy look like? Like database backups and all that fun stuff? So we do the, the database backups. We're fortunate in the sense that the majority of the data that we house or we don't, we don't house a ton of data. And so that actually helps us. So like if a server was to go down, um, our data is like a pass through to the VA. So the little information that we're storing in our database, we would, would recover from the backup, but that backup, it, it wouldn't be missing as much data as say, like if you were a retailer and you're trying to get a ton of information on today's transactions, um, obviously then too, we could probably, we, we also have our CloudWatch logs. So if we were to pull yesterday's backups and we needed to also recover some things from the logs, we could, but we are fortunate in the sense that the overall project does not store a lot of things in the database. Right. And even like if something, you know, ridiculous happens somehow and like all of your servers went down and everything was like corrupted, you can always rebuild that pretty fast with the Ansible setup, right? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what's really nice. We'd lose our entire Redis cache, but we can rebuild that. Yeah. That can always be rebuilt. Uh, you did mention though, and I almost forgot about this. You said you're using Terraform and Ansible together. Can you just give us uh, the rundown on Terraform? So, you know, we're using Terraform in a few different ways. The main way that I've interacted with it is that when we want to make sure our different employ uh, deployment environments need to set up different S3 buckets for different services is the main thing I've interacted with it for. Um, I'm sure our actual like DevOps and server guys have done a lot more complicated things with it. Yeah, I mean, if if he ends up watching this episode right now, he's probably like, but we're doing it for this and that and this. Yeah, they're going to be like, dude, why didn't you talk about it? And I'm going to be like, because. <laughs> so, I mean, we're kind of wrapping things up here a little bit. Uh, do you have any like best tips and lessons learned from coding up this application and running it uh, all together? Yeah, so, I mean, the it's been a very interesting learning experience because when you're dealing with the, it's the first time I've, been dealing with things that are not as I don't want to say everything's as good as Stripe, but when you're dealing with APIs that are undocumented, it's it's the best best tips I can say is just like go back to go back to your roots and write a lot of tests and do a lot of binding.pry and just it's okay not for everything to work right away. You know, you're gonna have to go through struggles to figure out things that are 
complicated. If it was already that easy, somebody would have done it. Yeah, yeah, that that is definitely excellent advice. It almost reminds me of something from uh, Elon Musk, right? It's like going back to, what's that term? Like the fundamentals or whatever. There's a proper term for it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, but... So, uh, given the code, I mean, have you made some mistakes maybe that you've learned from and like corrected? Yeah, you know, there, there's always been... Um... For us, actually, the, our big challenge is that mocking layer that I was talking about. We get requests and we mock requests initially, and then we develop against all of these things. And then our development environment and our local environment are all happy. And then we push it up to our staging environment, which is not mocked. And then all of a sudden, we start getting 500 errors. And there have been cases where it's just that we don't know that it external system that we're dealing with that well so it's hard to necessarily know all its rules and so we've had to go through a lot of process to get it up to an environment where we can really test it against an external system and then it's the hardest thing is that if you don't know what the errors are going to be it's really hard to properly present them to the end user yeah for sure so we spend a lot of time in the logs Yeah. So is there like a dedicated developer who just trolls through the logs and looks for stuff like that? No, it's usually just the person working on on that task at a time. We've all kind of had to, you know, pay our dues in that respect. Yeah. Is it seen like that sort of where it's like, you know, not grunt work, so to speak, but it's like, you know, maybe the lead developer isn't doing that? Um, I don't think so, because I think, you know, we, we tend to have a lot of folks on the team that are just like, it's more personally offensive to the developer that it's not working that they want to jump in and figure it out. So even with that team, you know, mentioned 20 de- developers, everybody is kind of just like optimistic and... That's about four different teams of five. Yeah. So, you know, everybody kind of has that idea of, you know, ownership of the stuff that they're doing and they just don't like to see it not working in, in a production-ish environment. Right. Yeah, that's always good to see. It's like, you know, that mindset or whatever is always pretty important where, you know, everybody needs to be on the same page to be accountable. Right. So I guess that just about does it. Uh, Charlie, thanks so much for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. So before I wrap this up, do you want to share any links maybe to like your site or Twitter or GitHub profile? So uh, I would like to promote oddball.io. Our company's growing. We're hiring. Um... I won't share my Twitter unless you guys like horse racing a lot. Uh, in any case, I'm Charlie Strand on Twitter, C H A R L E Y S T R A N. Mainly, I post about horse racing. <laughs> right. I'm sure people will dig that. So, sounds good. Thanks again. All right. Thank you for having me. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.